It was a banner day for Jesus and his dream team dozen disciples. The day before, Jesus had multiplied a poor boy's sack lunch to feed a city. Then he walked on water in the middle of a hurricane and calmed the storm and his followers' fears. So, let's check the boxes. Jesus is greater than physics. Jesus is greater than nature. Only one can check those two boxes on his resume, and that would be God himself. So was Jesus man, or was he God? Yes, Jesus was clearly a man, but he was also clearly not just a man. On this day, the citizens of the city wanted a word with Jesus. What would he do? What would he say? And perhaps a few people brought jars of water in case he worked that whole water-to-wine wonder again. But when they went to where he was, he was no longer there. And that's kind of strange. They saw the disciples board the boat, but he was not with them. And they didn't see him walk all the way to Capernaum. So how would he have gotten there? Maybe a few people joked and ribbed each other and said, <laughs> Maybe he walked on water. <laughs> and they laughed at the absurd thought that a man could walk on water. So they jumped into a ship and set sail for the other side of the sea. Maybe they would ask the fine folks in Capernaum if they had heard or if they had seen the miracle worker from Galilee. And after a quick search, they found Jesus. Not hard to do when he's working the wonders in teaching like he was teaching. Very easy to find him. And they asked him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? So there's your homework. This week, you have to ask somebody the question, basically, when did you get here or whatever you have to ask them in those King James words, when camest thou hither? That's a great phrase. Jesus didn't hesitate or look at the sundial. He answered a question they were not asking, but should have been. He answered, why would they come all this way just to see him? And Jesus responded, verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Oh, some of those church growth experts in the crowd cringed. Oh, Jesus, that's not how we win friends. Let's try to be nice. But Jesus cut to the quick and let them know he was running more than just a free food truck. He admonished them, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Jesus was trying to get them to look past just what they needed today to feed their stomach to what they would need for the rest of their life to feed their soul. And I'll share a little more about that story right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. Hey, thanks for being with me through this entire series called The Bread of Life. We are at the end of the quarter. We're at the end of the winter quarter, hopefully. That also means we're at the end of winter, and spring can spring because next week we begin our spring quarter for 2024. But today's episode is entitled The Bread of Life. It is the title track for this series, and it stems from John chapter 6, verse number 68. The Word of God, if you have it right there with you, if you don't, you just listen and I will read it. I promise you, I will read it correctly. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. 
and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus had just lifted the eyes of the crowd and their appetites above just thinking about dinner and reminded them life is preparation for eternity. They bantered for a while as they glowingly spoke of the days when a grocery store of free food rained from the sky every day and fed their forefathers in the wilderness. What a day that must have been to live in when manna would fall from heaven like rain. But Jesus worked again to lift their eyes above earth to heaven and told them the bread of God is not a what, he's a who. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Their eyes lit up. Well, if God has it, we want it. Lord, evermore give us this bread. That is a great word too, evermore. Evermore give us this bread. And Jesus' next statement left them speechless. It rocked them on their holy heels for a moment. They knew Jesus could somehow feed thousands with scraps, but that didn't mean he was divine. Or did it? And Jesus answered that question with his reply. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Silence. No witty retorts. No sarcastic comebacks from the crowd. Jesus had just claimed to be the bread of heaven from God who had come down to them to give them life. But wait, okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How? Jesus was Jesus. Now to us, he is divine. He is God in flesh, Alpha and Omega. To them, he was Joseph's boy. And though that was still up for debate since Mary wasn't fully married when she was with child, there was still that little scandal that was swirling over Mary, Joseph, and Jesus about who really was his father. But Jesus and his dad, stepdad, maybe, had worked the carpenter shop together. Jesus had delivered their dining room sets. He didn't come from heaven. Jesus came from Nazareth. How could you possibly say you're the bread of life? Now, how would you respond if the gentleman who came to fix your leaky roof winked and said, Hey, don't tell anybody, but uh, I'm the son of God. He's not the son of God. His name is Joshua. He wears overalls. He has a Packers bumper sticker on his work van. That's how they saw Jesus. Jesus was a carpenter from the sleepy blue-collar town of Nazareth. But he was so much more. He is so much more. He is the bread of life. He is nourishment for our hungry souls. He is living water for our thirsty souls. Let me just take a quick time out and tell you this. Jesus is God who came in flesh. He is nothing less. Please don't listen to the lie that Jesus was just a good teacher, a moral man, a good prophet. He was a rabbi. He was all those things, but he was so much more. He was more than just a good teacher that a religion should listen to. He was God in flesh that every one of us should worship and follow and live for and, if ever called on to, to have the grace to even die for him. Jesus was God who came in flesh, nothing less. Now, these Jews were not in the same place as their forefathers. They weren't slaving away under Egypt's blazing sun, but Jesus told them in very certain terms that he was leading a new exodus in their day. Their ancestors ate bread from heaven and drank water from a flint rock, but this Jesus was the bread of life and the water springing up into everlasting life. This exodus would not be like it was back in Egypt. This would not free them from some national superpower, but from a foe that had enslaved the whole of humanity since long before Moses. This exodus 
would set them free from the relentless, ruthless reign of sin. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, kingdoms come, kingdoms go. But sin has remained the constant, depraved despot behind them all. But when Jesus spoke, hope began to swell because all that was about to change. Time for our first question. Why was it so difficult for the Jews to believe Jesus was divine? And would it be hard for us to believe if we lived in their day? Now, we shake our heads and wonder how the Jews in the first century could miss Jesus, but they did. But we're not responsible for their response to Jesus and his words. We are responsible for our response. Their story has been written, and sadly, they got it wrong. But our story is being written, and Jesus is still the bread of life. Let's resolve today to feed our souls and our relationship with Jesus. While I was growing up in Mount Vernon, Ohio, there was this one wise woman named Irma Elliott. Irma Green then, Irma Elliott now. And she shared a story with somebody she was discipling. She said, it feels like two bulldogs are in me fighting all the time. One of them wants what I want, and the other one wants what God wants. And they constantly fight with each other. And her friend asked the question, well, which one wins? And wise Sister Irma Elliott replied, the one I feed the most. That is the wisdom of Solomon. Every day, we will choose to feed one or the other, either what we want, our flesh, or what God wants, our souls. And by our flesh, not referring to just simply that we want Dairy Queen today, but our human nature. I want what I want. I want power. I want money. I want status. I want esteem. I want what I want. But God wants humility. God wants meekness. Read the Beatitudes. God wants poor in spirit. God wants meek. God wants people who mourn over their sin. It's different than what we want. Little wonder when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. Today, I choose to feed my soul. I choose to grow in my relationship with Jesus. I choose to belly up to the buffet of the Word of God and feast on his forever settled, never changing Word. I choose to soak my soul in the presence of God every time I'm blessed to be together with his people. I choose to feed my soul. You should choose the same. I choose to walk with God daily so I can hear from him and he can lead me. Feeding our soul usually means starving our human nature. God, help us to be so full of you and your ways that we no longer hunger for the ways of this world. I gave you a few examples, but what are some other ways we can feed our souls? Well, you could hear the din of some side conversations all throughout the synagogue. Some of the crowd tried to be discreet, but it was more than they could handle. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. What? Claimed to raise people from the dead. Come on. Who do you think you are? How does this man claim to be God? Now, earlier, he was bordering on blasphemy, but now he has crossed the border and he's building his house in the seedy city of blasphemy. It was just a matter of minutes before God struck him or they struck him, but somebody's about to strike him. But Jesus was not finished. He didn't backpedal or soften the blows. He just kept coming and he saved the hardest saying for last. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Okay, that's it. He's gone too far. Was Jesus promoting cannibalism? Now, by this time, the Jews were quarreling and quibbling with each other over Jesus' hard-to-hear words. 
But Warren Wearsby suggests Jesus' words were not hard to hear if the Jews truly heard him. In his book, Be Alive, John 1-12, through Wearsby writes, All Jesus said was, Just as you take food and drink within your body and it becomes part of you, so you must receive me within your innermost being so I can give you life. Jesus was comparing natural food to spiritual food. Our bodies need to eat, so do our souls. Jesus wasn't promoting cannibalism, but man, once again, they missed it. But let's put ourselves in their shocked sandals. How would you have responded if you were in the crowd and you heard Jesus say, eat my flesh, drink my blood? How would you have responded? Might be a similar way than they did. Now, this comparison is akin to David's comparison in 2 Samuel 23, when three of his mightiest military men broke through the enemy's camp just to bring him back a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem. They risked their lives. They fought off soldiers for a drink of water. They returned it to David, and he poured it on the ground as a sign of humility and gratitude. I personally, in my Western culture, I don't get that. I would be, I would have been hurt. Like, really? We got this for you, and you just poured it on the ground? But... That was a different day, a different culture. David said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Now the water was not their blood, but the dangerous journey to bring it back to him could have cost them their very lifeblood. In a similar way, Jesus eventually will lead every follower to the foot of the center cross on Calvary, where we must allow his broken body, his flesh, and his shed blood to atone for our sins. In a similar way, we take his flesh, we drink his blood. Here's a question. Are there other hard sayings of Jesus you have difficulty understanding? I'm sure they are. So just think about some of those and think about what Jesus was saying when he said those. Those hard sayings were hard to to hear. For a short while, Jesus' followers were following him wherever he went, but this saying was too much. They, They shook their heads, they packed up their things, and they headed home family by family, follower by follower, left, disappointed and disillusioned with Jesus. He's no Messiah, they mused. Drink his blood, not on your life. When the dust finally settled, Jesus looked at the followers he had handpicked from the beginning of his ministry. They didn't seem to understand any more than the crowd understood, but at least they were still standing around. They hadn't gone anywhere. By most accounts, it didn't look like they were going anywhere. And interestingly, Jesus did not give chase to those who walked away. They willfully walked away, and Jesus willfully let them. He loved them enough to let them make their own choice. I want you to hear that. He loved them enough to let them make their own choice. But he also let them live with the consequences of that choice. They would live the rest of their lives knowing they walked away from the one who later rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. Everything he said he was, he was. They could have followed him, but they walked away. Let me ask you a very hard question. Is there anything that could drive you away from Jesus? And if so, what? Jesus asked his 12 followers, What about you? Will you also go away? That's not what they teach in Church Planning 101, Jesus. When the church splits, don't try to split it again by asking the people who stayed if they're going to leave too. You want to, you want to be nice to them, pamper them, give them a position, do something, but don't, 
Don't even ask if they're going to leave. This is time for damage control. Stop the bleeding, but not Jesus. Jesus was more concerned with people following him for who he is rather than for the many miracles he could work. He didn't just come to heal us from sickness. He came to save us from sin. And sin is not forgiven through soft speeches and even softer music. Sin is forgiven only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Peter stood up and spoke up for the group he often did. And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got it. The crowd did not, but Peter did. Jesus was never calling Peter to drink even one drop of blood, but he would have to hear and heed every word Jesus spoke. Jesus alone was the way to eternal life. We're still eight chapters away from Jesus' signature statement in John 14, verse 6, but let's read it anyways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, Peter already made that faith-filled declaration of why Jesus came and who Jesus was because Peter already knew. You are the Christ. May we have that same faith-filled resolve as Peter in John 6. The Word of God will offend our sin, but I'm not going anywhere. Your pastor should know. Pastor, you can preach the Word of God. Don't worry if I'm going to like it. Don't worry if it will make me feel good. Don't worry if it will make me jump and shout. You preach the Word of God. And if the Word of God offends my sin, then I will repent of my sin rather than being offended at the Word of God. Jesus has called us to that same selfless life of following him, just like he called his followers in John 6. I'm not turning around. I'm not walking away. Nothing you say to me, Jesus, will cause me to walk away. Now, let me, let me get really real with you. Nothing any of your kids say to me or say about me will cause me to walk away. Let me just get really, really real. <laughs> I know church hurt is a big hot-button issue right now. But let me say this, we are human, church hurt hurts, but nothing, nothing will cause me to leave Jesus. Nothing will cause me to walk away, nothing will cause me to be disappointed and disillusioned with Jesus. If my brothers and sisters hurt me, I will do my very best to reconcile with them, but nothing will cause me to walk away from Jesus. One eternity-changing day, Jesus turned to us and called us to follow. Well, this day and all my days, we will follow and never turn away. I want to wrap this up. N.T. Wright is a brilliant New Testament scholar, and his name is awesome. I believe it's Nicholas Thomas Wright, but his initials are N.T., and he is a New Testament scholar, so very appropriate. And he tells the story of a historian who was setting out to earn his Ph.D. The moment he finished his research and wrote his 200-plus page paper and defended his dissertation would be a signal moment in his life. But before he could celebrate, he still had a fair amount of work to do. And part of that work was research on the painting that was so prominent during the historical period he was studying. So he grabbed his notepad, his trusty pen. He headed for the galleries. While art aficionados and curious tourists oohed and awed at the masterpieces, the historian was scribbling down cold, hard facts about each painting. He needed to know who painted it, when, where the artist lived, who the artist's friends were, who the friends' friends were, and who influenced the artist's painting style. By the time he was finished with his research, he would know all the facts about each individual painting and the painter who painted it. Well, he finished. He earned his Ph.D. He rightfully earned the title of doctor. But he never stood back to take time to appreciate the masterful paintings themselves. 
All the facts etched into the plaques beneath the works were only there to shed a little light on the painting, not to steal the light altogether. After Jesus multiplied the sack lunch and fed the city, he hoped the people would see him, not just a free meal. He had so much more to offer than just a fillet of fish. He was only a matter of months away from laying down his life for them and purchasing their salvation at the price of his own shed blood. But they missed it because rather than see the masterpiece, all they could see was that little plaque that said, This is Joseph's boy, raised in Nazareth, from Galilee, born in Bethlehem, probably not the Messiah. Let's not allow the miracles and wonders to cause us to look only at the miracles and wonders. Let's look at the masterpiece. Look in full wonder to the one who works the wonders. And we will, too, call him what Isaiah called him when he spoke of him in Isaiah 9, verse 6. This one who fed the city and walked on the waves really is wonderful. Let's pray for God to help us to feed our souls on his word. He's the bread of life. Let's pray also for God to help us walk with him and never walk away. No matter what that means, we will never walk away from Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You are the bread of life. Thank you, God, for feeding our souls. Thank you for your word. Thank you for relationship with you. Thank you for the privilege to know you, to be close to you. I pray today, help us, Lord, to feed our souls on your word on relationship with you, on devotion, on our walk with you. And also, as we follow you, help us to never walk away, to resolve in our hearts that we will walk with you and never turn away. We love you, Lord. You are the one we look to, look for, and we worship only you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much, God's Word for Life listeners. I hope you are enjoying this podcast. If you're a teacher, I am thankful you're part of the God's Word for Life podcast, and hopefully this will help you to teach your students the Word of God. Be sure to subscribe, follow, like, notify, and then share with others so they won't ever have to miss. If you are a teacher, be sure to share this podcast with those, especially if they miss your class, that they can enjoy the God's Word for Life podcast and stay up to date with your class. Also, head over to PentecostalPublishing.com to pick up the God's Word for Life resources. As I mentioned earlier, we're about to step right into the spring quarter, and our very first series is on the book of John. So we're continuing in John, but we're going to go back to John 1, so doing a little bit of backtracking. And the first episode is called The Word Made Flesh. We're going to get to see Jesus in a whole new light, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week. And always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.